Hey everyone, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. This is Emily Shields, Executive Director of Iowa Campus Compact. And I'm J.R. Jamison, Executive Director of Indiana Campus Compact. And I am Andrew Selickson, President of Campus Compact. So how's it going, guys? For me, 2018 has started off with a, a bang, meaning I've been sick the entire um, year so far, pretty much. So just really, hopefully there's just nowhere to go but up health-wise. Um, yeah, how about for you guys? I have been an icicle ever since January 1st. <laughs> I feel like, I know depending on where you live in the country, the weather can be completely different, but here in Indiana, we have stayed in subarctic temperatures pretty much since uh, the start of the new year, and our office doesn't have the best heating system, so I've just been wearing lots of layers and freezing, so I feel like that's the theme of my life, is being ice cold. Great. Let's see, we have sick and cold. cold. Yeah, you might want to uh, add something positive to the yeah. conversation. Break some yeah. sunlight. Um, I'm fired up and ready to go. Uh, nice. Yeah, I think it's been a pretty good start to me. I was sick, but I got over it, so I, there's hope in that. It was extremely cold in Boston, but it got warmer, so there's hope for everyone from my experience and um i feel like you're uh, living in a future and you're telling us what it's going to be like exactly come come to my future come (laughs) come join me in the future it's that good so a couple of exciting things coming up for campus compact i guess coming up and that have happened so the deadline's coming up february 1st for our member campuses to nominate an outstanding community engaged student leader for the newman civic fellowship um, and at that gathering in um, the fall, and there is a there's a episode that we just released this year where we interviewed two Newman Civic Fellows. So you can go back and listen to that if you haven't already. Um, but at the gathering, Andrew, you also had the opportunity to give sort of a conjoined TEDx talk. I don't, I'm not honestly clear on how those two things related, or if they didn't and they just coincided, but. Wanted to talk a little bit about that so our listeners can go check that out. Yeah, the the relationship was first a coincidence, which is next door to our conference of the fellows at the Edward M. Kennedy Institute for the U.S. Senate, uh, the JFK Presidential Library and Museum was holding a TEDx event the same weekend, same time, et cetera. And these buildings are really maybe a couple hundred yards apart out on Columbia Point, which is where UMass Boston is located as well. And so uh, we were working with them to arrange to bring our students to some of those talks. And they asked if I would want to give one. And it's a very fun, interesting challenge, I found, uh, to deliver a talk in that format, both, um, you know, to really think about what you want to say in about 15 minutes that would, you know, live on YouTube and uh, be highly edited and whatever. It's kind of like you don't get that shot every day. But then also there's these funny challenges like, um, you know, I don't know if everybody knows this, but there's this red circle on the stage that's, I guess, about six feet in diameter or something. And you have to stand inside the red circle the whole time or you get outside where the cameras are. And it's just a weird experience to be trapped inside a circle. Like it doesn't seem like it would be, but I suddenly was like, wow, I can't really move around the normal ways I would. Uh, so it was interesting. It was fun. There was a really good audience. And uh, the talk is now, they finished the video editing. It's posted on YouTube. Um, we can put make sure there's a link in the, the show notes and otherwise up on our website. 
Um, but for me, it was a really interesting opportunity to reflect on some of my own fundamental values as well as some of the values that I think are shared across our network about uh, finding ways for people to communicate across deep divides uh, and and finding that kind of the motivation within oneself and the discipline in oneself to uh, engage in that work, which can often feel difficult and exhausting and sometimes exasperating. Um, so, you know, again, I, I would love to hear people's feedback on it. You can put comments right on the, you know, on the YouTube video uh, or contact me directly. I would I'd really, you know, be interested in engaging uh, with people's responses to the talk. That's awesome. I loved it, but I haven't um, created a comment, so I'm going to have to do that. I see what that. Yeah, I, I just <laughs> want. I just want to say that I loved it as well, and I'll be the person to say I don't always love TED talks. I think they're highly formulaic, and there are so many of them out there right now. I just kind of find them to be a bit boring, but that's my opinion. So I will say I hesitated to watch it at first, even though I, I love you, Andrew, but I kind of hesitated. But I was like, okay, I'm going to watch this. And I fell in love with it immediately. And I think it is because of your message around taking the full equality of others seriously and how to do that to bridge some of the deep divides in our country. And your personal story connected to that of your father uh, and what he faced in Germany. And that just blew my mind and really tugged at my heartstrings in ways that I didn't think that it would. And so... Not only did your story impact me, I feel like you may have turned me back onto TED Talks, so you can congratulate yourselves for that. But I would highly recommend people take a look at it. Jared, no, it's disconcerting to me when you don't like something because <laughs> I feel like you just sort of like lots of things um, and mostly are, as you say, fanboying about lots of things. So I, it's odd. I do get really excited about things. I always give everything a chance, but then I also get really bored with things pretty fast too. So, oh so it's just kind of my, my dynamic personality, you could say. But I loved it. So check it out and give Ted, Ted Talks a chance. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So speaking of JR fanboying, about things um you did that again this week i feel like you can't set the standard for every interview you do <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be someone you're so into but you were really into this one uh and it gives us a chance to plug our national conference a little bit too so jar say a little bit about who you interviewed and then we kind of talk about how she fits into our sphere. Yeah, so I got the opportunity to sit down with Don Porter, who is one of the keynotes for our national conference, which we can talk about here in a moment. But to tell you a little bit about Don, she actually is a trained attorney who made a career switch into filmmaking. She is known for her film Gideon's Army, Spies of Mississippi, Trapped, and she's a documentarian. Uh, I fanboyed out over her because she sat down with President Barack Obama to interview him for Rise, the promise of my brother's keeper. And as you'll hear in the interview, I just I had this moment where I realized I'm one degree of separation from President Barack Obama, and I'm not sure how to pull myself together in this moment. But Don was really great uh, at helping calm me down a little bit. And then we went into our interview. So we can check that out in a moment. But I'll let Andrew talk more about Don's role at the national conference. 
That's great. Yeah. So um, the conference, so everybody has it in their calendars, March 25 to 28 in Indianapolis. We're coming to visit JR, all of us. And the theme of the conference is true stories of engagement, higher education for democracy. And we really wanted to be thinking about, you know, in this moment of questions about the public value and private value of higher education, how can we get better at communicating about the work that we do in higher education that connects our institutions, our students, our faculty, our people with the real challenges and, and opportunities in communities around the country and for the country as a whole and for the world beyond. And so Dawn came to mind as a uh, speaker because of her work telling stories about complicated public issues. So as JR was just saying, you know, she's made films about uh, really complex issues, which they they'll, you'll hear about, but about you know laws that are intended to restrict access to abortion, about uh, the work of public defenders in places where they are severely under-resourced, uh, and other kinds of challenging, complicated issues that are really important for people to understand. And she does it in a way that uh, takes seriously the fact that not everybody starts out with the same point of view, uh, but also really presents, you know, some compelling work. So she seemed like a person who uh, might be able to to bring some perspective to us that we may not have just kind of within the higher education engagement community. It happened that I have known Dawn since I was in high school. I met her through high school debate. She was a great debater at the Bronx High School of Science, one of America's great public high schools, uh, and uh, had a characteristic then that I still heard in the interview now when I listened to the recording, which is while the rest of us seem to be like these awkward, you know, complicated, bumbling around teens, uh, like Dawn has always been a person of great clarity and um, generosity and uh, just like seemed way ahead of us all at that time. And so uh, it was exciting for me to hear that. I think she's still a great person for all of us to listen to. Yeah, what else do we have to look forward to at the national conference? Um, I'm excited. I'm presenting, so get excited about that. But we're going to do a live podcast recording, are we not? We are. Yeah. So folks interested in being playing a larger role in the Compact Nation podcast should make plans to come to the national conference. And ask questions of our, our interviewee. Whoever that might be. <laughs> that's a mystery to be revealed later. <laughs> yep, that's yes. a, it's a mystery. All right, we'll go to that interview and be back soon. Don Porter, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I have to say before we begin, I know that you have interviewed President Barack Obama for your documentary, Rise, The Promise of My Brother's Keeper, and I'm yeah. kind of fanboying a little bit uh, from that. So I'm going to try to keep my composure as as we go through this interview, and I'm also realizing that means I'm one degree of separation from President Obama, and I'm just not really sure what to do with that <laughs> other than to be excited. Well, um, I'll tell you, it was... It was very exciting. And, um, you know, when the president of the United States says, um, and particularly that president, um, who is, is such a great interviewer and interviewee, um, agrees to sit down with you, um, there's so much that has to happen um, to make that interview 
go go well and, and to go right. So I was really, really, you know, busy preparing. And, you know, when you think about it, we also had to find a camera person that was acceptable to the White House and to Discovery Channel and um, sound people. All our crew had to be background checked. Um, there's a lot of, like, technical details that we had to deal with. And then there was the substance of the interview. And then we only had about um, 45 minutes. Um, so I was really focused on all of those details. What I wasn't focused on <coughs> was what it would be like to sit down knee to knee with the leader of the free world. Wow. <laughs> so um, the day the interview comes, you know, I've done all my homework. I'm all set. We sit down and he looks and he's, he's just looking right at me. And, you know, I made a couple of pleasantries and then I look in his eyes and he looks in my eyes and I froze. Oh, no. <laughs> I said nothing for an uncomfortably long period of time. It was just the, the moment was overwhelming. And he finally said, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think I said something to the effect of no one has ever paid this much attention to me. <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> that is the first thing i said to president obama um and then he laughed and he made a joke and he made it uh so easy to have uh what was a great conversation um so it was really a highlight of my career if not my life um doing that so i know how you feel i am still curling <laughs> over the fact that i was in conversation with um uh, i think one of the greatest presidents we've had yeah. Well, I want to talk a little bit about your transition from attorney to filmmaker because you are trained as as an attorney and some people may think that that's an unconventional switch in careers. What what was the transition? What sparked that? Um it was a bit of an an evolution. I mean, when I look back at it now, being a lawyer is really great training for being a documentary filmmaker. Because if you think of the skills that you need to be a documentary person, um, among the biggest is listening and interviewing. And I was a litigator. I did a lot of um, depositions, which, you know, you're, you're interviewing people for, you know, like over and over and over. So, you know, I've done, I can't even count the number of depositions I've done. Um, and then there's also, you know, as a lawyer, particularly as a litigator, what you do is you make something that could be complicated, easy to understand. You you tell a story. Um, as a litigator, you have a client, so you have a definite point of view. I think as a documentarian, you're more open. You should be more open. Um, but the essential skills are the same. How do I make something complicated, simple to understand, and, um, you know, entertaining. And even as lawyers, we are entertaining, right? Like mm -hmm. you, you want to be able to, to watch and follow along and get caught up in a story. And that's essentially what you do as a documentary person. But so for me, I was, I practiced for five years at a law firm in Washington, DC, big and Hostetler. Um, I had a good career there. I had people I liked, um, but really, motivated me to make a change was I had a very, very close friend who uh, died in her 30s of ovarian cancer. And I remember after she died, I said to myself, you know, I'm, I'm fine here. 
as a lawyer, but I I think I could I think I could be happier. I think I could be using more of myself in my work. And so the next I don't have to be so safe. Mm-hmm. So the next, you know, kind of opportunity challenge that comes, I'm gonna say yes. I'm gonna do something that safe kind of me wouldn't do. And the next thing was an opportunity to go work for ABC television in New York. Um, we were living in DC at the time. I, I was newly married. I was married for a year. And so I said yes. And I went and I was in-house counsel for a couple of years. And then I got hired to work for the news division. Um, and that really, that was when things really started to click for me. Um, I had always been interested in film and media. I was a journalism person in high school and college. And um, my father was a photographer. So like kind of pictures and cameras were just part of our life. You know, I remember spending a lot of time when I was little in his studio. Um, But when I was working for the news division, my job was to um, work with reporters on ethics and standards. Um, And so I read a lot of scripts, news television scripts. I sat in a lot of edit rooms and I saw what really great storytelling was. You know, there's some fantastic reporters who could take something really complicated and, you know, kind of distill it so that it was informative and comprehensible and watchable. And, you know, I did that for a long time. I I went onto a cable network. And then at some point I started thinking, you know, I wasn't really seeing, this was kind of like when reality television was just really taking off and there were, you know, Swamp Things and um, Dog the Bounty Hunter and those, you know, there's there's a place for those, and those can be fun shows. But I thought there's, I would like to be part of a different kind of storytelling, and I thought I can do this. So um, I would use my vacation <laughs> and days off, and I would go to conferences about making documentaries. I'm a lawyer, after all. I like to do research. So I did <laughs> yeah. for a year. I did that. That's what I did with my summer vacation. I went to documentary conferences. Um, and as soon as I was at these conferences, I felt like these are my people. Like they were just everything about it clicked for me. The, the, the storytelling, the how do you make things beautiful? How do you make them interesting? The debates that were happening. Um, and so all I needed was a, a subject. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was all ready to tell my story. If only I had a story to tell. Um, and then I was introduced to these uh, young public defenders and uh, by a man named Jonathan Rapping and a woman named Kirsten Levingston. Um, Kirsten was at the Ford Foundation, and John is a fantastic uh, defense lawyer. And when I saw like what John and was doing training these baby lawyers, I, I kind of almost started crying. I thought, like, this is what a lawyer should be doing. This is how you should help people. Which is also, you know, we're recording this on Martin Luther King Day, and I think mm-hmm. that's very fitting to think about that. And um, so I just started. I just took everything I had learned from my days of watching people who knew what they were doing do it. And I made a lot of mistakes, but um, I felt like I felt like I could do it. And you know, it was it was difficult, but it, it always felt like the right thing to do. And I just kept seeking out people, you know, who could help me and mentor me. Um, and that's that's what happened. Mm-hmm. And then. It just kind of went on from there. 
So thinking about being an attorney and, and when you're in the courtroom, you're making a case. And mm -hmm. at some point that case ends up being closed or, or settled or whatever that may be. Mm -hmm. um, but when you do a documentary or a film, in many ways it lives on for forever, right? And so I'm just curious, what are some of the long-term impacts or even short-term impacts that you've seen from your films? Um, films do live on and they, they're, you know, it's, it's something you, it's a really good question. It's something you don't necessarily think about when you're just starting out. You're in the process of compiling something that's artistically, um, you know, impressive, hopefully. And also there's a story and a subject and a, it's a snapshot in time. Um, so, you know, there's, there's something really, you know, we spent three years filming my first film, Gideon's Army, about the public defenders. Um, and, you know, it came out in 2013 and it's used so many places, but um, there were so many unexpected consequences. You know, the first is I have so many people um, who write and call and they want to reach out to the public defenders. There was... Um, one person who started volunteering for the public defender service. Um, our main uh, subject, John Rapping, um, he got a MacArthur Genius Award. Um, I know that it, the award is because of his work, but I think, um, I hope that, and, and I do think that amplifying what he was already doing contributed to that um, recognition, that deserved recognition happening. Um, but my favorite, as a lawyer geek girl, my favorite thing that happened is um, Attorney General Eric Holder uh, cited the film in a footnote. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. Yes, about uh, funding for public defenders. And there was, a, um, there was a, a brief the Department of Justice did um, where they noted the discrepancy um, between funding for uh, prosecutors and for public defenders. And um, Kirsten, who was the Ford Foundation and our, our main funder, um, called me up one day and she said, did you see footnote 11? I can't remember what the footnote was, but it was like footnote 11. And I said, footnote 11, what are you talking about? And she said, the attorney just generals quoted the film <laughs> um, in making the case for, for uh, giving a large grant to public defender training. So there are things you, you don't, you put your work out into the world, you know, and I always say um, people will use it as they will use it. And I hope that people use it. I hope people see it and they are touched or moved or they just think in some way. And so you don't really know what's going to happen. So everything that happens is um, a wonderful surprise. But it's one of the things that's very fulfilling about about the work. Well, and as a, a lawyer and a filmmaker, that moment when when your film was was cited, that had to feel like your world's colliding, like everything coming full circle, right? It really did, and it felt like you know, um, you know, I think like like as we started the interview, I always talk about how being a lawyer and a filmmaker are are not really that separated. Um, but that specifically, that was, that was pretty much, you know, a very geeky, <laughs> exciting thing. Um, you know, there's other things, um, uh, my film trapped about abortion providers has been shown in Ireland, um, three times. And I'm really, really proud of that. Abortion is illegal, um, in Ireland and the women who are showing it and who are fighting 
to change that, um, you know, that they would reach out for this film was was really um, inspiring to me. You know, so I've gotten calls and notes from like all over the world um, about different different things. So you know, it's the power of media. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're we're a smaller world, which is which can be really nice um, to see that there's kind of a global conversation about some issues happening. Um, you know, we took uh, Gideon's army to China wow. and showed um, in in a number of cities. We had an 11 day tour of China with that film, and the reactions and the responses. You know, a question that still stays with me is um, we showed it at a, at a college, at a university, and one of the students said, can you still love your American democracy? Um, you know, and I thought, um, you know, I, I paused mm-hmm. and I said, I do, because I believe that, you know, but I don't believe that all parts of it are perfect. And I think that, you know, we have a lot of work to do to live up to, um the actual meaning of what, you know, my interpretation of what democracy should be. So, um, you know, there's, there's so many different, but the re the reactions are, it's a big part of why you do the work is you want to keep having these conversations and you want, you know, you take people on that, on that journey with you. Mm-hmm. And the beauty of a democracy is, uh, ideally, we, we are able to have those discussions based on our artistic outlets. I'm curious to know, so I did watch Trapped this past weekend, and I loved it. I'm curious to know, do you feel like it contributed to the Supreme Court's ruling in the whole women's health versus Hellerstedt? Um, you know, it's, it's hard to know and to answer, and, you know, I don't want to, um, I think... I think what it did help do is continue to amplify the message of the work and the actual um, day-to-day lives of the abortion providers. And in particular, um, you know, I'm really, so when I first started Trapped, I thought um, I was really interested in the lawyers and what the lawyers were doing. and there were a number of cases that were kind of going through the courts. Um, and the, the lawyers were kind of central to how I ended up framing the film because uh, Nancy Northup, who is the dynamic and dynamo leader of the Center for Reproductive Rights, which is um, you know, pr- primarily, not all, there, there are some men, but primarily female-led, not-for-profit law firm fighting for reproductive rights around the world. I mean, like, what a great story, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But it's difficult to film with lawyers. They're in the middle of cases and things are privileged. Um, So, of course, I ended up, you know, with the providers. But um, I think that Trapped was part of a conversation about what was happening. You know, and and when I started Trapped, I'm pro-choice. Um, I was always above board about that. Um, but I had no idea about what was happening in the southern states. And I, I felt like if I'm a person who's politically active and pro-choice and I don't know this, I bet there are a lot of other people just like me. So um, I think there, there's, there had started to be a lot of conversation about what was happening across the country um, 
in terms of clinics closing and these laws being passed. So, you know, again, it came back to, for me to how are we using the legal system to impact people's rights in what I believe was a negative way, but also a perversion of the legal system. Um, laws are not supposed to be punitive. They're supposed to help our society improve. And these laws were a waste of money. They were dangerous. Um, you know, the um, maternal mortality rate uh, tripled over the time that Texas is in Texas, over the time that those clinics were closed. Um, so there's a real world harm to closing clinics. Um, so I, I can't say, I can't draw a line, you know, from traps that I wouldn't ever presume to, but I do think it was part of the national conversation. Um, and, you know, being on PBS in every home in America helped, um, potentially in every home, um, premiering at Sundance helped you get, you know, kind of a publicity boost from that. And it just, you know, if people didn't see the film, they might see something else or they might read an article. Um, so, you know, together, all these forms of media together, I think, did make an impact. Mm -hmm. And you said that Trapped was the film you were called to make in many ways. I also mm -hmm. read that as some of the screenings, security uh, detail had to be available uh, because of the real danger that exists from being able to show a film uh, like this um, has. Do you ever feel unsafe when it comes to doing the work that you're meant to do? Um, you know, at times, um, there were some times that, you know, you felt, uh, I definitely felt uncomfortable or on higher alert. Um, you know, we would take precautions. Um, the very first time I showed any footage from Trapped, there was an anti-choice person in the audience that I didn't know about. I didn't think about that when I first started. Um, and she put, you know, wrote an article and put my name out and said, HBO filmmaker, my first one was on HBO. She said, HBO filmmaker turns her attention to the unborn or something like that. Mm. And I thought, you know, um, this is going to be a different experience. This is not public defenders. Nobody cared about public defenders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, abortion, and when you wade into that territory, there are people who are unbalanced. And, you know, when we, um, when I was making the film, there was a, a scene, an interview in which Dr. Parker, who's the, the main doctor in the film, and he said, um, I don't wear a vest. And, a few weeks after we had locked and finished the film, um, the the man murdered people at Planned Parenthood in Colorado. Mm. And, um, you know, I remembered that piece of the interview and it was already, you know, it was essentially had gone to print. You know, it would be very difficult to take that out. And I called Dr. Parker kind of in a panic and said, what do you think about, I, I said, my God, I, I, you know, I'm feeling really uncomfortable about advertising that you're you don't wear a vest you know and he said to me um something i'll never forget and he said they shot dr tiller in the head in church mm. and so he had long ago made a decision that he doesn't want to die he wants to live to have a nice long life but um he also wasn't going to stop his work or his speaking um or change his life and so he said, no, you keep it in. 
And that's part of the reality, you know, of this work, unfortunately. So, um, you know, but we did do, we did have to have a lot of security. Utah is an open carry state, um, as Sundance reminded us. And they were very good about um, security at screenings, not just at ours, but at, at all the screenings. Um, and we did hire, you know, bodyguards. Um, they were members of the U.S. bobsled team. They're really fit, like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> strong men. And um, at one point, we had, we had all the providers. So we had basically the entire, all the doctors in Alabama that provided abortions were all together at our screening. And as well as... Um, Dr. Parker, who worked in Alabama and some other states. So you can see if those anything happened to those people, abortion access would stop just because those providers were mm-hmm. there. So it, it really was, you know, not kind of a, a hypothetical situation. But the, um, the, the security people we hired were fantastic and fun and friendly, and they loved the abortion providers. And at one point, you know, we didn't have a screening and I said, oh, what are you doing today to the providers? And they said, we're going snowmobiling. And I was like, you're going snowmobiling? What are you talking about? And the security guards took them snowmobiling. <laughs> <laughs> and the provider said, you know, there's nothing an anti-hates more than an abortion provider having fun. So, you know, we have all these really cute pictures of them in like winter clothes. And um, I think it was really great for them to be out of what is a very hostile environment um, where they work and live and to see so many people who support and are grateful for their work. So, you know, that was another um, really, really enjoyable and satisfying time for me is Mm -hmm. to give them, to to show them how many, you know, they got standing ovations everywhere and people were coming up to them and, you know, one of their autographs. And I, I think, I think it was really good for them to see how much, they were appreciated mm-hmm. outside of, you know, where they were, where they live and work. Mm-hmm. What I enjoy about your work is showcasing those stories and lifting those voices up that may not get heard uh, in, in mainstream ways. Um, I'm curious to know, too, in our current political environment and the sudden mistrust of mainstream media and the calling of fake news and and such, what role do you think documentary filmmakers can play in reestablishing trust uh, for folks? Um, you know, that's a really, really great question. And um, it's something that I think is a, part, a necessary conversation for documentary filmmakers um, and that we're having. I'm on a number of, you know, kind of not boards, but, you know, advisory committees. And um, there is a conversation in the doc community about that because, In recent years, um, you know, we've seen, in addition to stories that are are films that are about social issues, there are a lot of films that are really creative and experimental and more artistically driven. Um, And I think documentary filmmaking is not the same as news, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, so if you're like I was, I worked for a news organization, there are very clear rules in news organizations. About what you can or cannot do there aren't such clear rules in documentary and and people aren't getting the same training that they they would if they were at a news organization so you have people interpreting how they discuss facts how they do interviews um, whether or not they can 
change what someone said or use different pictures. Um, so I think there's a real opportunity for documentary filmmakers. The, one of the biggest opportunities we have is, is we have longer time to tell stories. So we're not a 30 second commercial or a two minute news piece, you know, we have an hour and a half or two hours to really explore a topic. I think with that opportunity comes the obligation to be transparent with your audience about whether or not you're taking any liberties or shortcuts. Um, and, but that's a conversation that has to happen. Everyone has a different opinion on how they construct their films. So, um, you know, I think as the public's um, response and appetite for documentary filmmaking is probably higher than it's ever been. People really enjoy the form. And I think that that says something. Um, and so, you know, at least for me, I feel like my obligation is to be as transparent as, you know, necessary. Um, so. Mm -hmm. Besides yourself, uh, who are some documentarians we must know about who you would say are, are ones who are doing great social justice work that our listeners should be on the lookout for? And maybe, maybe those who inspire you too. Yeah, there's so many. Um, Christy Jacobson does a beautiful work. She made a film called Solitary um, about solitary confinement. Um, Sarah Burns made the Central Park Five which is fantastic. Um, Heidi Ewing and Rachel Grady um, have made so many films. Um, I just love their work. Their most recent is One of Us about um, the Orthodox uh, Hasidic community um, and a woman seeking to leave the community and losing her children um, as a result of it. Um, my goodness, there's so, so, so many. So, um, I think if you, you know, if you just look at Netflix documentary, a lot of our work ends up on Netflix, either as originals or later. Um, there's so many ways. If you look at PBS, um, uh, Point of View and um, Independent Lens, um, there is just some spectacular storytelling happening on those, those platforms. Um, so I think, you know, if you're interested in documentary, you can, there's some much to explore and you can kind of go down the rabbit hole <laughs> mm -hmm. and have a good time. So if you're home stuck in the snow, you know, nothing like a good abortion story to get you through the day. <laughs> yeah. So some of our listeners out in campus compact land may be interested in making a transition to becoming a documentarian. What advice would you have for them uh, as far as using storytelling as a means to advance humanity and the public good? Um, I'd say that um, you should surround yourself, you know, be honest about your skills and your um, abilities, and then try and put together, you know, making documentaries is a team effort. There's an editor, there's a, a cinematographer, there's a sound person, often there's, there's a producer. Um, you don't, if you don't have that whole team, um, if you start to work with people, it's much more fun to work with people and to kind of like think about your story. What documentary filmmaking is not is picking up a camera and pointing it at somebody. I mean, you really should think about what story am I trying to tell and why? Why am I driven to doing this? And you really, 
you know, I think um, it takes a long time and can be very expensive to tell these stories. Um, and that, you know, can be an impediment, but usually, you know, and certainly what's happened with me and a lot of filmmakers I know is you're so taken, you're almost obsessed with the story and trying to figure out and your curiosity just pushes you, pushes you, pushes you. So pick something that you feel almost compelled to talk about and, you know, let your curiosity and your determination show you the way to do that. There's no one way to tell a story. It should be your way. Um, and, you know, keep yourself open to advice um, and, and, you know, be as honest as you can. I, I think that that's, that's the biggest thing. You will be the keynote speaker for Campus Compact's National Conference in Indianapolis, March 25th through the 28th. I'm excited to see you there. Have you been to Indianapolis before? Um, I have been to Indianapolis once. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, it's, it's, just, it's a great city, and I'm, I'm really excited to be there. Um, this is such a great time for us to be talking with each other, you know, a time when people are feeling frustrated about our government. And no matter what your political leanings, I think, you know, the, the form of government and the way, the way that the conversations are happening, I think is distressing to a lot of people. Um, for me, the substance is also distressing. Um, but, um, I'm really excited to have this conversation and talk about, what it's like to be, you know, kind of telling the stories of people in social justice movements. And, you know, there are a number of commonalities that I see, um, you know, and this is a really great time for young people, um, but it's a great time for anybody, you know, um, this is not the time to be quiet. And I think watching people find their voices and people who just won't quit you know, that, that's one of the things I want to talk about is people in really difficult circumstances and how they manage to not only persevere, but to thrive and to have happy lives. You know, they're not, they're not all warriors all the time. Um, and how just motivating that is, you know, that people actually can take their own lives into their own hands, um, and help others. And, um, you know, I just, I find that really gratifying in my work and I'm eager to hear about what's happening, you know, with your audience members and what they're motivated by and what they're, you know, I'm interested in making it as much of a conversation as possible as well. Mm -hmm. And not everyone will come to the table as a filmmaker wanting to be a documentarian, but I think what will be inspiring about your message is that all of us have a place to tell the story, right? And not remaining silent, as you said, we all have a role to play to tell the story to create change. And I think that's what's so beautiful about storytelling is that you don't have to be a writer per se, you don't have to be a filmmaker, that each of us have a role to play in telling that broader story. Uh, in the work that, that we do. I think that's, that's, it's really true. And I think about, you know, I have a 14 year old um, and he tells me about conversations they have um, in class and, you know, where he has tried to be brave 
and and bring up things in conversations. So, you know, we all face many choices um, in our conversations and interactions with people. And I think, you know, this is a time in the world where a lot of people in everyday interactions are saying, am I going to let that go? Am I going to ignore? Or am I going to say something at whatever platform I have? Um, and I think that's a conversation we all can be having. Don Porter, thank you so much for joining me on the Compact Nation podcast. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to seeing you all in Indianapolis. Welcome back, everybody. Um, great interview, JR. I appreciate it a lot of what she said. It just went in so many interesting directions. I think one of the things I was thinking about the most is, you know, we talk a lot about storytelling. That's a lot of what you do, JR. We're focusing our national conference on that. And sometimes I think what we're talking about is storytelling about community engagement. You know, how do we better tell the story of what we're doing? But what she was talking about was storytelling as community engagement, you know, storytelling as social change. And I thought that was really powerful and interesting and just kind of a different way of thinking about it. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I think it's it's also the case that things can be both, right? That mm-hmm. sometimes the way we tell the stories of our work ha- can bring other people into a dialogue about uh, how we want our communities to be and uh, what other kinds of work we need to do together to make them, you know, the the kinds of places we want to live and, you know, see the next generation raised, et cetera, et cetera. And, and for me, I think that is a really interesting thing to think about how you communicate about work you're doing that is itself uh, creates a platform for other people to engage and continue the conversation and, and shared reflection. I would agree. What I like about most documentarians' work and storytellers' work, and especially that of, of Dawn's work, it's lifting up the voice of others and providing a platform for those who don't often have the opportunity to share their stories in a, in a wide way, in a broad way, like Dawn is able to do through these documentaries. Uh, I also found it fascinating, and this came out in the beginning of the interview, uh, of her being an attorney and transitioning into a filmmaker. I just thought that seemed like an interesting career change. But then when she said, if you think about it, when you're an attorney, you have to prepare a case and prepare a story that you're sharing with others. Uh, and making a film is, is much like that. But in this instance, it's using real people and lived situations across the country who are facing some some of the hardest challenges that they may have faced in their entire life and putting them in the position to inform others about that that can make real community change. Um, I, you know, I got the opportunity to watch Trapped this past weekend. I hadn't seen the film prior uh, to that. And, and I asked on this question about, do you feel the documentary could have any way influenced the Supreme Court's decision? And, you know, as she said, we can't say if it did or didn't because there's no way to really pinpoint that that could have happened. But in some ways, it it creates more information that's out there for individuals to base decisions. And so when I think about storytelling being done well, it's lifting up those voices of others to really be their own advocates for change but they may not have the platform to do it. So those of us who are trained storytellers have 
um, have a responsibility to make that happen. And, and I feel like that's what Don does and is doing really well. Yeah, but I also feel like there's a responsibility then of, you know, people like us, folks on campuses, to take what's been done with that and, and help turn it into social action. Because one of the issues I have with, you know, any type of awareness raising is that there has to be that next step of what do you do with this knowledge, right? If you have more knowledge that this topic is an issue for people, that these voices you haven't heard before exist and are going through something what do you do with that? And I think that's something, you know, that that academic courses and other academic endeavors can very successfully do is take content like documentaries, have that education process turn into a social change and action process. I think, you know, when I spoke to Dawn about uh, the possibility of her speaking at our conference and we, you know, talked about sort of things she might talk about and how she would approach it, one of the things she talked about with me was the responsibility she feels to tell stories that matter to the public because the issues matter and and issues on which she has a strong perspective herself, but do so in a way that respects the humanity, the individuality, the autonomy of the people in the film, whether there are people with whom she agrees or disagrees or who represent a point of view that, uh, you know, is one she walked into the production process with or something that challenges that. And I also think that's a really important part of this that, um, you know, as if, if we want people to be informed and aware in ways that lead to action, it's important that part of that process is recognizing that there are other human beings who may legitimately hold different views that's not a reason to be paralyzed. One should still act in favor of the, the views one holds, but that to do it while also holding at the same time and understanding that the other people involved in whatever fight or effort or whatever uh, are themselves human beings with dignity and with their own point of view. I just think that's a really important thing, and I was struck by the fact that that was one of the first things she said about how she approaches her work. Yeah. Well, I'm very much looking forward to her keynote and hope we'll see many of our listeners at the national conference. So who wants to start with uh, this episode's pop culture corner? Who has something? I think Andrew does. <laughs> I do. Uh, I have um, a strained analogy posing oh as a pop culture corner. Uh, okay. So um, I don't know whether I talk about this very often on the podcast, but I'm a big soccer fan. Do I talk about that a lot? It's, um, maybe it's a couple of times. Yeah. yeah, okay. All right, so I am. And um, uh, two things that are pop culture-ish in certain ways. One is that I have been, uh, I subscribe to something called Fubo. It's Fubo.tv. So it's um, got a bunch of TV stuff online. For me, what I like about it is it has a lot of soccer. So you get the Bundesliga from Germany and La Liga from Spain. Uh, you get Liga Emekis from Mexico, etc. And um, most of it is in Spanish language. And since I'm also trying to learn Spanish, this is a side benefit, uh, is that I'm watching a lot of soccer in Spanish. Um, although it's confusing sometimes because I'm watching like German soccer in Spanish and I just get confused about what's happening. Um, but that's anyway, sort of off the side. Then I'm reading a book right now, I'm about halfway through, 
uh, a book by Jonathan Wilson called Inverting the Pyramid, which is a history of soccer tactics. So I know I have everybody's attention fully engaged right now. What? I, and, I fell asleep for a second. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so here's here's the reason I'm I'm bringing all this up, which is I've been thinking a ton about. Um, so you know I've been reading this book, then watching soccer, trying to understand the relationship between the things I'm reading about and what I'm seeing. And one of the things that I've been thinking about is that um, kind of all the developments in soccer tactics have to do with creating greater opportunities for interconnection among the players on your team. You're always trying to sort of create situations where people can work together really effectively. And it's a big field and you have opponents and there's a lot of things that can sometimes make it very hard to work together effectively. And so everybody's trying to outmaneuver each other to create these sort of these ways where their players can successfully interact, move the ball around, get it where it needs to go, uh, and, you know, score goals and stop the other team from scoring. And it just occurred to me how much of, it's certainly how much, like, of my work at Campus Compact is basically that same thing, trying to put the people and the resources together in places where great things can happen. I feel like when I was working on campuses doing community engagement work, it was the same thing that whether you're thinking about partnerships or you're thinking about preparing students uh, to do work together, uh, you know, introducing students to community members and, and having them learn together, training faculty members about kind of how to put themselves in communities in ways that are respectful and potentially productive, that this thing about kind of connecting people with resources, in the case of soccer, that's usually the ball, uh, and putting them in places where despite the various kinds of barriers and, uh, you know, whether it's distances or time or whatever, the, those kinds of factors, people can do effective things together that achieve goals. Uh, anyway, that's just been striking to me as I've been thinking a lot about soccer lately. Wow, that's deep. Well, I will look forward to more soccer analogies uh, moving forward then. It's a great book, by the way, because I have to say one other thing about this book. I'm, I know I shouldn't, but I'm going to anyway. It turns out to be kind of an intellectual history of 20th century Europe and South America because all the developments in soccer tactics are connected to developments in the larger world. It's totally fascinating in this way. Uh, so that's just another pitch. Even those of you who don't know you're interested in soccer tactics could actually like this book, Jonathan Wilson, Inverting the Pyramid. Mm. We'll see. We'll see. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll, you're I'll rushing give, right in. I'll give it some thought. No, it could be interesting. Soccer is the only sport I played, you know, not well. So possibly I should have read books about soccer tactics about 25 years ago. But um, regardless, I have been reading a book that I'm not quite finished with, but close, called The Lost City of the Monkey God. And it's by Douglas Preston. It's about... Um, his role in going with some documentary filmmakers and others and discovering, I'm putting that in air quotes right now, this lost city in Honduras in the rainforest that, of course, you know, whenever modern people discover something, it's kind of suspect, right? Because it's like, you know, people there know it exists and that kind of thing. It's not necessarily new but actually the book talks about a lot of those things and, and what's interesting is that it actually kind of talks some about how things 
work in academia because there's other there's an archaeologist that goes on the trip with them but there are other archaeologists who don't agree with their methods or the involvement of a document documentary film crew um, there's a lot about how they work with Honduras you know so that this is something that's theirs but also so that it's protected from looting and that kind of thing it's been really interesting on a lot of levels just in terms of honestly for me like mechanically how things like that happen in terms of archaeology and what is archaeology versus you know treasure hunting and that kind of thing so i'd recommend that one it's pretty interesting mine isn't quite as deep as both of yours i'll have to check out those uh i actually came to the conversation today not sure what i was going to talk about pop culture wise because i feel like i haven't been watching or reading uh, too many things lately in my life. It's taken me in, in different directions that have kept me from, from watching or reading. But I will say I've been without my phone for two days because it broke. And it's a really long story I won't get into. I have to pick up my replacement this afternoon. But I've not had an instant connection to any of my social media sites, any of my podcast sites, any of that for two days. And some people may say, wow, that must be a great relief to be disconnected in that way and it actually is not and it's made me realize how much of my community I build online and how much I connect with the things I love all through the palm of my hand and to go without that for two days seems a little sad but it also reminds me that online and social media sites aren't necessarily all bad things to create divides between us I mean they certainly do those things there's also beautiful community that can be found in those places. And I've certainly realized that as I've lived without those things in the past two days. So that's my little pop culture connection. Well, I, that could be an entire episode conversation. I feel like, cause I have, a, I have a lot of thoughts about that. Cause I feel like a lot of the, you know, you'll, you'll hear people look at a group of kids on their phones, say like grumble that kids don't connect the, with anyone these days. They're always on their phones. That's what they're doing on their phones is connecting with people right. for the most yeah. part. And maybe it's or, not or reading, finding information. Right. right. Yeah. Maybe it's not always positive connections, but you know, real life connections aren't always positive either. So yeah, let's I don't know, how can we relate that to higher ed community engagement and dig into that? Because I'd love to explore that topic a little more. I think we could do it. Even if tan- it's tangentially, we we can do it. <laughs> I was going to say, we, we've made more tenuous connections in the past. I don't think we should, you know, limit ourselves. Okay, sounds good. All right, well, thanks for joining us, everyone, for this episode. We'll put the TEDx link in the show notes, so you can go find that as well. Um, and look forward to uh, talking to you on future episodes. As always, um, it's in the new year, you can like us follow us on itunes or your other platforms where you get podcasts and give us a review just help us get the word out and get it in front of more people and of course make plans to attend the national campus compact conference coming up in march thanks everybody have a great day bye-bye bye Season two of the Compact Nation podcast is produced by Naval Mahdi for the Campus Compact headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts, and its 1,100 colleges and universities around the globe. All rights reserved. Learn more about Campus Compact at compact.org. The hosts of the Compact Nation podcast are Emily J. Shields, J.R. Jameson, and Andrew Seligson. 
Recommendations for guests, topics, or general questions can be sent to podcast at compact.org or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag CompactNationPod. The Compact Nation podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us.